everyone. Uh, my name is Bassam Haddad, and uh, with me is Noor Aliqat. We are uh, producing this podcast, Politics in the Time of Corona for Status Al-Wada, and we have with us a fantastic uh, speaker and activist and many more things who will be introduced right now by Noura, and we're addressing the same topic, and she's joining us from New York. Jessica Malati Rivera is actually joining us from San Francisco, to which she has relocated. And first and foremost, she is an expert. She is a microbiologist and a science communicator who has been during these very difficult times uh, discerning a lot of information that's available in the public realm as well as in the scientific community to communicate to us in basic terms how we should be responding to this pandemic, what we should understand about it, of the many, many brilliant things that she's been sharing with us. This morning she shared um, a a very fundamental basic about questions that everyone's asking, who will survive, who will be the hardest hit? How long will this last? What should we be uh, expect? And as any, I would say, sound scientific expert would respond, Jessica tells us it all depends on many different um, factors and contingencies. And so we're, we're excited to have you join us with the Jadalia community. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So yeah, we'd love to start off, just if you could just tell us how you are and how your um, family is before we get into uh, the meat of your expertise. And how you're handling this, this situation. Yeah, uh, doing okay. I mean, I'm having to take a, quite a bit of melatonin to shut my brain off at night to go to sleep because it's just a constant amount of input-output. Um, you know, in many ways, I'm reliving the past because my entire graduate career focused on pandemic modeling and pandemic prediction and seeing how and what would be affected to what scales, you know, on the U.S. level, on the global level. So it's it's eerie in many ways and familiar and also very shocking because I have two young kids who are now, you know, their whole lives have been disrupted too. And they're asking when things are going to be normal for them as well. So it's it's a bit disorienting for everybody. But, you know, thank God we're healthy. Thanks, B. Um we would love to get from you uh, a bit of a rundown on where we're at right now. The United States has surpassed apparently every other country, hitting with 85,000 accounted cases of the virus, which might be underestimating the number because we're actually not testing. So we'd love to get just a, an assessment from you of where we're at now on a national level um, in dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, I think there's a few caveats that we need to consider when we think about all these case counts. And I try to make that when I post online. You know, we are severely deficient in widespread testing. And so these numbers should be taken with a grain of salt. There are, you know, a number of healthcare professionals who are confirming to the the degree that they can that they know that more people have it. They know that more people have died as a result of it, but they haven't been tested Um, And so the numbers are a little murky. And I think this all goes back to how pandemics need to be handled with a lot of severity and and, uh, quickness from the very beginning, because the number is probably a lot larger. And I understand a lot of the criticism of the case counts is that, you know, you have to think about population density and population totals. Even still, you know, the U.S., uh, is not nearly as populated as China or as densely populated, and we pass them. And that's only with confirmed tests. So it's, it's if anything, should be damning. 
Uh, and what are the things that um, you've taken away in terms of how the administration and the task force has responded to this? They have, um, it seems so far, not you not been heavy handed about this and still pursued what looks like a mitigation strategy. Do you think that that's correct? What, how as a public health expert are you watching them um, do what they're doing? I mean, in many ways, we all were forced to be in mitigation because we let the disease kind of go unchecked for a number of weeks. When you do that, you don't get a chance to get ahead of the curve. You don't get a chance to do the contact tracing and the isolation of contacts to prevent it from spreading. When you don't do that, you have community spread. And that's what we started getting reports of pretty early on, that people were reporting people were being confirmed with COVID-19 and they didn't know where they got it from. So we've been in mitigation since day one. And that's really unfortunate because we had an opportunity and we missed that opportunity. It came because of failed leadership. And so right now it's what we're hearing is, you know, we're doing the best, we're doing awesome, we're doing exceptionally great, but really we've just been trying to catch up this whole time. And what about um, the different, the way that this has been politicized? We've seen that this has become a battle between different uh, governors and the federal government so that there, there's actually no consensus on that. We've seen that New York, New Jersey, California have responded to it in a different way and have actually uh, criticized the Trump administration for its mishandling. How should we understand that political um, conflict? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to remember, too, that when we first started getting recommendations, uh, we were getting them from agencies that don't have really enforceability. I mean, the CDC was making recommendations of don't gather in groups of uh, groups larger than 500, then 250, then 100, then 50. And when you think about those numbers, to a degree, they're just kind of arbitrary based on risk of probability, you know, and so... Um, when you have an agency that's trying to make recommendations and really kind of relying on the enforcing bodies, the federal government, to say you need to act on this, it really kind of defaulted to the government. Okay, well, if we're not going to get mandates from the government, we need to just do it for our own states. And unfortunately, that caused a very kind of not harmonious timing of all these shelter-in-place mandates and recommendations. I mean. Uh, living in the Bay Area, it kind of had to trickle down to medium strict to, you know, now we can't do anything because people really weren't getting it. And they kept trying to compare it to what the CDC was saying. And when the CDC is not matching what the government's saying, when the government's not matching what your governor is saying, it causes a lot of confusion. What does it look like from California? It's one of the hardest hit. I mean, only after... I mean, now probably trailing Louisiana as well, but after New York, how, how does it look from your vantage point? You know, there are hot spots of, you know, spikes in cases, and the Bay Area was pretty hot in the beginning, and it seems like the, the peak might be plateauing a bit. But, you know, it's, the thing that we've been saying, too, is that whatever's happening today was baked in a few weeks ago. So it's really going to take us several more weeks after these strict shelter-in-place mandates to really see the impact of how much the disease was slowed down. So in places like Los Angeles, they were doing strict shelter-in-places just a week ago, but they had to get even more strict by closing down parking at beaches because people thought, oh, well, if I just go out to places that are spread out and with lots of open air, it won't be a risk. Every state official, every local official and mayors are having to make that circle smaller and smaller and smaller because people really aren't getting it. So 
you know, I think California did a great job by making it statewide really quickly. I think several states kind of followed suit after that. I think it's really interesting to watch the evolution of Andrew Cuomo in New York and how he said it would never happen to now he's, you know, one of the strictest mandates in the country and absolutely necessary because look at what's happened there. Jessica, just to pick up on this thing that you say, is the risk that it's airborne or is the risk that the that well, there's too many of us outside in pro close proximity? Yeah, that's a great question. To the, to, as far as we can tell from the data, the disease is not airborne. It is droplet-based. And that's why they're, they're requesting that people stay six feet apart because that's typically as far as a droplet can go from a cough or a sneeze. So if it were airborne, it would be much more contagious. I mean, it is already extremely contagious, but to compare it to something that is airborne, like measles, for instance, measles can actually last in the air for several hours. What we're seeing so far with COVID-19 is that it can last on surfaces for a few hours and it can be sprayed onto somebody from a cough or a sneeze, um, which sounds really gross. But, yeah. you know, that's why they're saying keep a safe distance if you have to go outside for something essential. So, so shaking, shaking of the hand would actually transmit the virus if somebody who has it, like, had just touched themselves or... Exactly. If they touch their eyes, nose, mouth, if they sneezed in their mouth, coughed in their mouth, in their hand, I mean, you know, that's exactly how it's transmitted. Or if somebody was touching, you know, had some of that, those droplets from their face and touched a surface and that another person touched a contaminated surface. And, and, and the contaminated surface you said can, had, can hold the virus for several hours? You know, the, the data is still coming out on that, but it seems like it can last for a few hours depending on the material. So they're saying it can last on, you know, your phones for several hours. It can last on, you know, your clothing and things in the house for a few hours. So so the, so, gro the grocery store is probably infested, potentially speaking. It's always a risk to leave. I mean, that's why they're saying don't linger. So they're saying that is an essential thing because we have to eat, but it's not a zero risk thing to go to the grocery store but, but but yeah but but the idea is if even if you keep your distance from other people in the, in the grocery store if people who are infected have touched things and you've touched them after they had touched their mouth and nose and so and eyes that's also i mean so, so it's not just keeping the distance it's actually what you touch generally given that this is the case i mean uh you know it was scary already but this is this is uh yeah this is uh, not, not not good news yeah, it's, I mean, I don't mean to cause any more fear. I think that, you know, you have to think it's okay. about, like... It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. You know, seriously, it's okay, because I think many of us are nonchalant about this or go in and out of being super cautious. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, when people started seeing that, like, the streets were emptying and there wasn't traffic and their parks looked like nobody was there, they kind of took that as liberty to just go out. But the, the problem is it's really difficult to guarantee that going out, you'll have zero or very low you know, proximity to people. And so that's why they're saying you're safer at home. The degree you can order your groceries or make, you know, just kind of eat down whatever you have in your freezer and kind of be creative with dry goods, do that. But, you know, you, people have kids, they need to get milk, they need to get fresh produce and stuff. And those things, there are ways to decontaminate and to clean them. Um, but again, they're not saying necessarily that foodborne or through things from the grocery store are like the highest risk because, you know, the data is still coming out on that. What about certain, um, 
we've seen, I, I, so I just want to touch on a number of developments that we've seen also recently. Uh, one of the most positive developments has been the idea of COVID plasma, which came out of Mount Sinai Hospital, that somehow the transfusion of blood might be a source of an anecdote. Yeah, so this is a really interesting therapy that they are considering right now at Mount Sinai. Essentially, when somebody gets a virus, you know, your body creates an immune response. And the immune response is the development of antibodies. And those antibodies recognize the virus so that if you were exposed to it again, it says, no, I've already seen this before. It's not going to happen. It's your body's way of shutting that down, another immune response. So what they're saying is they're, they are asking people who have had confirmed COVID-19 to come in to get tested for their antibodies, to get tested for their blood types, to see if they're good donors for donation. And what they'll do is something called human covalescent plasma therapy. And they will take that plasma and transfuse it into somebody who is seriously ill in the hospital to essentially jumpstart their immune response to the virus because they'll have antibodies that have recognized the virus and maybe boost their response and fight the virus faster. The interesting thing about this too, though, is that by doing antibody testing, it tells us who has had the disease. So while we need testing for the virus, we also need antibody testing for the antibodies to see who's had it in the past, because that's really gonna tell us how big the disease has spread, how wide it's spread, and how many people are technically healthy today who don't pose a risk in the public for getting or transmitting the virus further. But Jessica, isn't this contradictory with um, studies, uh, like that article that we talked about, the medium.com article of the um, hammer and the dance, isn't it contradictory that what it tells us there is that there's no such thing as herd immunity here, that this virus um, has the capacity to mutate, it mutates even more the greater in people that it infects, and it's lethal in almost every um, situation, and yet you're telling us that here is a therapy that actually does benefit from those who have recovered. So yeah, a couple of things to clarify. So this, we don't have established herd immunity. Herd immunity is kind of like an earned benefit of a disease or of a vaccine, for instance. In fact, a vaccine is a perfect example of how we make herd immunity happen. You, a person who is vaccinated functions like a dead end for the virus. They can go into a group and they're not gonna spread the virus. And so when you have enough people who are dead ends, who cannot spread it, you create enough herd immunity. Herd immunity will eventually happen as more people get and recover from it. But the important distinction too is, you know, there were countries like the UK before Boris kind of got his head right that were suggesting doing an open air experiment of herd immunity, like kind of let it run wild and see who recovers and then you'll establish herd immunity. You can't do that because of the risk of how lethal this is for that 20% of the population. So we don't have herd immunity as a baseline, but we are achieving it slowly as people recover from it and hopefully when the vaccine is available. Now, you know, to the other point on, you know, the virus mutating, the virus has mutated a couple times, you know, to jump from animal to human is a mutation and to become a human to human transmissible disease is a mutation. And they're saying that there could be two strains right now, an L strain and an S strain. But so far, what I've read even from this morning is that it seems to be mutating at a slow enough pace that the, fire, the vaccine research they're doing seems pretty promising. Meaning if it's not gonna get too different from what they're doing with the clinical trials on, we might have a really good candidate available for us in about a year or a year and a half. A really good uh, 
vaccine. vaccine in a year and a half? That's the earliest, really. And honestly, that's unprecedented timing. I mean, vaccines can take five, seven, ten years for approval because the, the, the testing for safety and efficacy is extremely rigorous. I mean, one of my biggest passions is vaccine education and vaccine advocacy. And so I spend a lot of time trying to help people understand just how safe vaccines are because of how much testing we put them through. And, you know, they are expediting this process. They the animals they went to humans and they've already started the first phase one with 45 volunteers. And, you know, we're hoping that by the time that they're in phase three, we can have a stockpile of a potentially effective vaccine. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really, uh, <laughs> that's not hopeful. Uh, I mean, considering. And that, yet it is because of its unprecedented yeah. speed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's not, I'm, I'm also assuming that uh, for vaccines to actually be legitimate and become a, uh, a public uh, tool, they have to actually also wait for side effects or, I mean, I'm assuming that's part of the reason why it takes so long. That's exactly what the clinical trials are for. The clinical trials are basically to show, they, they picked 45 healthy volunteers with no comorbidities to make sure that in the best case scenario, you know, these are not causing people to have a worse outcome if they're exposed to the virus. I mean, that's that's really the worst thing to do is to give somebody a vaccine that makes them more susceptible to the illness or something that causes other issues, either vaccine injury or, you know, symptoms or um, side effects that are negative. So they're, they're really putting it through the ringer, through these really brave volunteers to make sure that when it's widely available, it actually cr creates better outcomes for more people. But in the meantime... You know, they're also working on antiviral therapy treatments, too, because we can't just wait for the vaccine. We want to be able to have medication to treat people who have it. The vaccine is going to help prevent people from getting it. Okay. Um, can we move a little bit towards our favorite topic, which is um, uh, the Trump administration response? Uh, we know that you railed against the machine yesterday in response uh, to 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 a, a development in the task force. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So you know, epidemiology and public health are—it's really a thankless job. You know, the job is intended to—it involves a lot of math, it involves a lot of modeling. It is not looking through a crystal ball and trying to make predictions. It is an incredibly robust science, and you know. A number of skilled epidemiologists are doing their best based on the data that we have, peer-reviewed data and data that we're getting from countries that are reporting, to say, this is the best case scenario, this is the worst case scenario. And, you know, we try to make those caveats and saying, this is not, you know, infallible. However, it's also a range. And yesterday we heard from, uh, you know, the task force spokesperson, Deborah Burks, you know, she was casting doubt on one of the biggest projections that was made by Neil Ferguson. Uh, he put out a paper that went viral about a week ago. It caused a lot of hysteria because people were really worried about, I'm so sorry, that's my notification. Um, sorry. I guess, um, I guess the moment we started talking about the administration. They're like, hey, hey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so they, uh, she was casting doubt on the numbers because he came out yesterday to say, okay, well, the, the health system in the UK might actually be spared. And, 
um, you know, there is a chance that it won't hit those really high numbers. We may be closer to 20,000 deaths instead of the 260 plus thousand. You know, the right wing media ran with that and turned this into a, this is a hoax. This is part of a plot to cause mass hysteria, to tank the U.S. economy. And Trump is, of course, turning this about himself and equating a bad economy as an intentional weapon to essentially make him not electable again which is incredibly narcissistic and incredibly wrong because if anybody took the time to read the unbelievably dense report that Neil put out, Dr. Ferguson, you would see that it included a range as low as 20,000 and as high as 260. And what he was saying is aggressive social distancing is working. The, the condition that required it to be as low as 20,000 with social distancing and it's happening. So if anything, it should be validating the experiment. How can I make this stuff? It's okay, it actually is good. It just wakes people up. <laughs> it's nice, I like it. More, yellow. No, I mean, isn't it under system preferences? I'm so sorry. It's really fine. It's Jessica, totally for fine. people who are asking, and I know I, I started off the program this way, but for people who are asking, how long could this potentially last, given that um, aggressive social distancing is working and has proven effective, what are what's the range that you can tell us about now? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly difficult to predict that because we just don't know what was already baked in. I think if I were to guess that aggressive social distancing should probably continue for at least another month, you know, just because we are starting to see n another surge of cases and that was what was baked in from a few weeks ago. Also, we haven't been doing aggressive social distancing for very long, you know, and I think Singapore and Hong Kong are two perfect examples of what happens when you get really strict and you see really positive results, and then you let your shoulders drop a little bit, and you let your guard down. Singapore, within a few weeks of kind of relaxing their measures, saw an you know an uptick of 40 plus imported cases in a day. Mm. So mm. you know social distancing works. There's data to prove it, and there's data to prove that when you get relaxed on it, it starts to fail. This is this is really remarkable, Jessica. Thank you so much. And uh, with with the uh, I'm assuming Nora might have uh, another question. One more. But uh, <laughs> before I forget, uh, would we be able to uh, get in touch with you to uh, to do a follow up uh, in the future? Anytime. Okay. I'm here for you guys. Anytime. Any questions that you have, I'd love to answer. And we'd love we'd love to also uh, if you uh, are interested, to, if you can work with us to like produce uh, a, a set of. Uh, guidelines or statistics or data that we could actually provide to to uh, to people as we publish these uh, these conversations definitely i'd I'm, love to help i'm putting you on the spot in public yeah <laughs> this is all going in the in the real um this is my last question which is related to the one about obviously we can't project but this idea that we've all seen this chart and then we see where the curve flattens and uh, ostensibly, we haven't seen the apex of the chart yet. We have not seen a surge that's about two to three weeks coming. Maybe even, I've heard, you know, as late as mid-May. At yeah. which point, when the curve flattens, um, would, like, public policy then say, now we can loosen up? Yeah, that's a really great question, too. I mean, so 
the whole point of the modeling of the curve is to say it, it's about the hospitals. It's about the it's about our healthcare infrastructure. As soon as we start seeing the hospitals it, accepting and maintaining a flow of acute cases that's not causing a burden, where every person who needs a ventilator is able to get a ventilator, every person who needs to get you know triaged for in a certain way is able to do that in an effective way, then we can start to relax. But right now we're seeing hospitals in New York reporting, I mean, quote, apocalyptic yeah. scenarios. So. We're just not there yet. I mean, the whole point is, this sounds grim, but, you know, we expect to see cases of COVID-19 for at least a year and a half. What we're trying to do is pace them out so that over the next 18 months, not all of them are in the hospital at the same time. And so I think we just need to be watching and paying attention to our healthcare system, listening to doctors and nurses telling us about their shortages of PPE, the shortages of ventilators. Once it becomes a sustainable pace and even hospitals can function outside of COVID, I mean, I heard from a doctor yesterday that was saying it's a surgery hospital. Every single surgery is canceled. They're a 100% COVID-19 hospital now. That's not sustainable for healthcare in America in general because none of, not all of those surgeries are elective. Some of them are very critical. And when you have a lot of unanswered secondary health issues, that's, that's what's causing the overall fallout of this of this pandemic because it's not just the people dying of the disease right. itself people dying because of what the disease has done to the infrastructure thank you thank you so much uh jessica um we will uh, will try to uh continue this conversation hopefully we will not need to but it seems like we will we will uh please take care of yourself your family and uh thank you so much for giving us the time and thank you all for for listening and we will be back with you soon and jessica we will be in touch thank you so much great well thank you guys take care take care bye bye, bye.